church, and let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis 25 this morning. Genesis 25, and I trust that God will bless us as our time in His Word. You'll find that if you want to use the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 19 is where we're going to begin. And uh, while you're finding your way to Genesis 25, may I uh, extend an invitation to all the men here to join us this coming Saturday night. Uh, That will be, I think, the 11th. At 6 p.m., we're going to have a men's dinner. It's going to be a wonderful opportunity for us men to fellowship together and to eat good food. And I'm very much looking forward to spending a little bit of time kind of challenging our own hearts as we enter in this new year. What does it mean to be a man of God? And and what are we doing to become more Christ-like? And I I do want to let you, you men know you will not drift towards Jesus. You must be intentional. And so those are some of the things we're going to explore. Uh, If you want to come to that this Saturday, if you would sign up in the book at the welcome desk, we would certainly appreciate that so we could have a good count to know who uh, is planning on coming. Also, I just want to mention, uh, we find ourselves here in Genesis, and as I mentioned, we're in Genesis 25. Maybe you're new here and you're thinking, why are we starting in Genesis 25? Well, we're not starting in Genesis 25. We're picking back up uh, our study of Genesis if you were you're here last spring, we went all the way through the life of Abraham, and we see that Bible taking us all the way through uh, chapter 25, and so here we are picking up, and we're going to begin a series on uh, Abraham's grandson, uh, the life of Jacob, uh, this winter and into the spring. It will take us about through Genesis chapter 36. It's important to note, especially when you're studying books like Genesis. Genesis, of course, is full of wonderful stories, isn't it? And uh, we might have a temptation to, to pick up one of those stories out of the blue and try to pull some kind of moral nugget out of it and be like this guy or be like that guy. And quite often we do that, and certainly that's helpful at times. But Genesis is not a book of, of virtues, if you will. Genesis is rather a book that lays out God's plan to rescue humanity. If you, if you look at Genesis from a distance, you see that, of course, God created the world, and he created it wonderful and beautiful and good, and yet man rebelled. And there in the early chapters of Genesis, if you remember, it's one sin after another, and it's raising this question all the way through chapter 11, what hope does humanity have? When we get to chapter 12, we find the hope. When God calls this man Abraham, and it says through, he says to him, through your family... I'm going to bless the entire world. And that's God's rescue plan for humanity. Through the family of Abraham, he'll rescue people from all nations. And that same promise gets passed on to Abraham's son, Isaac, as we'll see next week, God willing, and then on to Jacob, and then, of course, eventually all the way to the greater son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who brings God's blessing to us. And so I mention that because I want us to consider Genesis with that large picture in mind. We're reading this book ultimately to discover how God intends to save and bless people like you. And even people like the individuals we consider. And so here we are in Genesis chapter chapter 25 beginning in verse 19. Hear now the word of God. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padam Haran. 
the sister of Laban, the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. The Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were complete, completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so, they call, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Our Father, we're thankful for uh, your word that we can consider this morning. And trust you would like to speak to us through it. Um, Incredible truths contained here. Truths just not about these boys, a family some four or 5,000 years ago, but truths that pertain to us even this day in uh, January 5th of 2020. And so we come with expectation, desiring to hear from our God. We ask that you would speak to us through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The, it was in 1894 that the Baltimore Orioles, believe it or not, were one of the best teams in baseball. Um, in fact, some consider them one of the best teams ever. They won nearly 70% of their games, had six Hall of Famers, on their roster, and would win the pennant three years in a row. But they didn't always win the right way. In fact, they were kind of an underhanded team. So when a base runner was rounding the bases, an infielder would reach out and grab him, sometimes tackle him. They would shave their bats, just the side of their bats, in case they wanted to bunt with that side in order to control the bunt better. They would fake being hit by pitches. But their most notorious scheme is that they would hide... Uh, baseballs in their tall outfield grass. And so if a ball was hit over an over a outfielder, rather than running and fetching the ball that was actually hit, he would run to the closest hidden ball and get up and throw that in. And what clearly could have been a, a double or a triple was held to, to maybe a single. And they would actually, by the way, they were so good at this. You think they would get caught. They were so good at this, they did this routinely for three years until a game in 1896 when the ball was hit over the left fielder's head and the left fielder actually chased down the ball that was hit. The center fielder, also running to make the play, picked up a ball that was next to him and they both stood up and threw simultaneously two balls sailing into second base. And so the gig was up. There's a team that would do anything to win a baseball game. And I think Jacob would have fit right in with that team. 
Here we are, uh, as I mentioned, stu- resuming our study of Genesis, and we're going to consider uh, the life of this, the, the son of the, uh, Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, and he is perhaps one of the most devious and shady of all peoples that we find in Scripture. I, uh, uh, in my study, uh, people have described him as a cheater, a schemer, an exploiter, a heartless opportunist, and, and I, I, would, I would say amen to all those things. I think he is absolutely fits the bill. And yet it is interesting, therefore, isn't it, that Jacob is the one who God himself would rename Israel. And that really the story of Jacob is the story of the birth of the, the very people of God. That God would choose a man that is, is, is uh, entirely unattractive, we, we would say a wicked man, to actually begin his people. And in doing so, what is God showing us? But that he is a God of grace. That he, he's not looking for the good people to be on his team. He's looking for the bad people and giving them grace and beginning to redeem them. And we, in fact, we see this electing grace here of Jacob rather than Esau prominent in this passage. It would actually become one of the chief examples uh, that John already read for us that Paul would use to teach the New Testament doctrine of predestination. It, 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 that is because Jacob wasn't the only boy in the family, was he? He had a brother named Esau, and yet we see very clearly here that God chose Jacob and not Esau. You see, this is a very divided family. In fact, you know this prophecy, perhaps that prophecy in verse 23 is kind of the, the unifying theme of all these stories in which God told uh, Rebekah, two nations are in your womb, or the King James says, two manner of people. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so these two boys, Jacob and Esau, they really, what God is teaching us, exemplify two two nations, two peoples. One would be the people of faith. The other would be the people who live for the physical world. A good meal, the, the comfort of a good wife. And these two people, they continue even to this day, don't they? And they, they, they shop in the same stores, and they root for the same teams, and they vote for the same politicians, and yet they look at life very, very different. They, they have a very different view and understanding of what life is about. And yet the difference between these two, two groups of people, let's not mistake, make the mistake that we say, well, one, one is the good guys, and the other are the, the wicked guys. No, 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 you, we'll see very clearly that they're both pretty wicked. They're both despicable, and yet God gives grace to one and not the other, as we'll see here in what I, what I identify as six different scenes, and we'll draw out the theological principles as we go considering these boys. The first, of course, is the absence of sons. The absence of sons creates quite a problem. You know, verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Haran, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Verse 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. So we immediately confronted with a problem in God's plan. He's going to bless the world through this family. The problem is Rebekah can't have children. This, I trust, would have been a great difficulty to Isaac, just like it was to his father, especially in light of the prosperity of his older brother Ishmael. Just look up a a few verses, verse 16. Remember, Isaac also has a brother Ishmael, and these are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, their villages, and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. And it goes on to describe the lineage of Ishmael. He has 12 sons, 
And here's Isaac, the child of promise, and he has no, no children at all. And, and then you think about what, what about the hardship this must have been on Rebecca. Uh, it, it was, remember when, when uh, uh, Abraham's servant went to fetch Isaac a wife down in Padam Haran, and he found Rebecca, and Rebecca gets on that camel, and she's about to leave, and the family gathers around. You may not recall this, Genesis 24, they begin to sing a song about Rebecca, and part of the song they sing is, Our sister, may you become thousand of ten thousands. Right? That's a high bar, isn't it? Right? Right? We, just, we just hope that you have children and children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And, and then, by the way, when she meets her betrothed, Isaac says, Oh, by the way, God has spoken to my dad and told him that through me, I'm going to have as many children as the stars in the sky and as on the sand on the, on the seashore. And certainly their expectation was what? Children. Lots of children. Children soon. And yet the years pass and the decades roll by and there's still no children. For Isaac's wife was barren, just as Isaac's mother was. You remember, Sarah. It's odd, I think, that this uh, promise that God gives to, to bless the nations through the descendants begins not through one barren woman, but two. And by the way, it, well, it doesn't stop there. It's going to continue in the next generation as well. As you know, Jacob's a wife, uh, Rachel's, also barren. Why? Why is God starting it this way? Well, I wonder if God is trying to teach Isaac, just as he seemed to be teaching Abraham, and I hope will teach us even this morning or reaffirm in our heart, that the covenant blessings of God are only brought about by divine intervention, not through natural human working. And so he's showing that, yes, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to, in fact, do it often despite you in order to bless the world. I think, of course, it is preparing us for another surprising birth, a a descendant of Isaac uh, that would be born to a virgin that we spoke of, of course, a few weeks ago, didn't we? And therefore, what does Isaac need to do? What does Rebecca need to do? Well, they need to wait, just as uh, uh, Abraham was taught. They need to wait patiently on the Lord. You know, sometimes in our life, I think, and I'm sure you've had this experience to some degree or another, that the normal blessings of the human life that it seems to other people happen to enjoy are elusive to you, right? Maybe you want to provide for your family, and, uh, and yet there's obstacle after obstacle. Maybe, maybe you, you want to serve the Lord in ministry, and yet those opportunities don't come, and whatever it might. Maybe it's you want to have children, and yet uh, the, no children are, are coming at all. And, and we think, well, maybe God has abandoned you. What's going on, God? Well, I don't think that's what God is teaching us. Rather, God is teaching us, just as he's teaching Isaac and Rebekah, to depend upon him, to wait on him. It's James Boyce, the, the great Presbyterian preacher of old, who said, God is more interested in what is happening inside of you than is what happening outside of you. In other words, what, what God cares more about our faith than our circumstances, and God will often use difficulty and hardship in our life to grow our faith, for it's in those times that we learn to trust him, and we learn to lean upon him, and that we learn to rely upon him. And it seems to me this is what's going on in Isaac's life. The question we might ask then is, does Isaac know any of this? I mean, is Isaac, uh, did he know that God was, was leading him to learn to live by faith, just as he was teaching his daddy Abraham? We're not sure, but I kind of think he did know it. 
Because though Rebecca, just, just like his mom, was both beautiful and barren, Isaac did not walk the path of his father. Remember that, that, that Abraham uh, faced the infertility of his wife, Sarah, and what does he do? He runs off and gets a girlfriend, right? He says, we'll solve this problem that way. But you notice Isaac doesn't walk the path of dad here. In fact, Isaac probably experienced the hardship that brought on the family more than anybody enduring the conflict between Ishmael and, and himself. And so he does not repeat his father's sin. Instead, what does he do? Well, look in verse 21. And, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. He prayed for her. He wants a baby, and so what does he do? He prays for a baby. In fact, that word, that little, that little preposition, uh, where is it? Uh, he prayed for his wife, literally uh, is towards his wife. He prayed towards his wife. Uh, uh, many commentators think that, that he didn't go off and pray, in other words, pray for his wife, but he prayed with his wife present, facing her, why he prayed to God on her behalf. And I think what a beautiful example this is to husbands, for instance. You want to build intimacy in your uh, relationships, in your, your marriage. I think one of the most important things you could do is, to, is not just to pray for your wife, but to pray over your wife, right? to, to wrap your arms around her and, and, and realize, listen, there are some things you can't fix. There are some problems you can't overcome. There are some obstacles you cannot leap, but you can pray. You can pray. And so in my mind's eye, Isaac is there taking uh, Rebecca in his arms, and he's saying, Lord, this is my wife, and I, and I love her so desperately, and this is so hard because we want to become parents. And you promised us we will be parents, and so we don't understand, and so I'm asking you, God, will you please bless us? Will you please give us a child? And I think what intimacy that must have built in their marriage. I think you want to have intimacy with your children. You want to have intimacy with your spouse. Hold them in your arms. Let them hear your prayers for them as they pray for, for a baby. Right? They want a baby. And, of course, uh, we resonate with that. We want babies, don't we? We want babies, don't we? Amen. Amen. Babies are good. Okay? Uh, by the way, we've got like three dozen babies in the nursery right now. And uh, just... Uh, we need help in the nursery. God has blessed this church with lots of babies. And so uh, I speak to the members of Hamilton Baptist Church. You should be serving in some capacity on Sunday mornings. Not every Sunday morning necessarily, but you should be serving every, uh, on some Sunday mornings, serving your church. One way to do that would be serving, getting on that nursery rotation. But if beyond just having babies, we want to see people come to faith. We want new Christians in the faith, don't we? We want, we want infant uh, followers of Christ, people surrendering their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so how are we going to bring about people coming to faith in Christ? Well, we must pray. We must pray. That's not all we must do. Just, just as it was not all Isaac must do in order to have a child, Right? We must tell people about Christ, but we must pray. I wonder if your community groups, as you be, uh, kind of renew uh, this new year, if you could think maybe a core part of our prayer time is that we will regularly pray for the lost people in our, in our uh, sphere of influence that, that God might bring them to faith. I will tell you in just a couple weeks, the last week in uh, January, we're going to have um, as we do uh, every year, our annual week of prayer. And there'll be opportunities for us to gather together to pray for those who are lost in our lives, that God would give them new life. And so here Isaac prays to God, and notice what God does. Well, verse 21 tells us, doesn't it? 
and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. What uh, uncontrollable joy this must have brought. At last, finally, a child. You, you wonder if old Isaac, of course, Isaac means laughter, doesn't it? Might have taken Rebecca in his arms when she first told him, I'm pregnant, that he was turning her, spinning her around, and, and just that thunderous laughter of joy that God finally answered that prayer. But sadly, um, and, and you may relate to this, it doesn't solve all the problems. For you see, scene number two, the conflict between the sons. It uh, begins rather early, doesn't it? For we read in verse 22, the children struggle together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Notice uh, uh, briefly uh, what is in her womb, according to the Bible. Children. The Bible calls that children. We, we sometimes use technical terms we call uh, children in the womb, fetuses, uh, and that's fine, I'm sure. But it, please understand that the Bible regards the, the children in the womb as human beings. It's, it's not defended. It's not argued. It's just simply assumed. We find this throughout Scripture. This is very clear for us, for instance, in the nativity events, that the, the, the one in the womb is a child. And therefore, because Scripture teaches this, Christians are pro-life when it comes to abortion. Um, it, it is, it, 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 we are that because it is not someone's private uh, decision to take the life of another person. And the Bible says the, the child in the womb is a person. That's not politics. That's scripture. Okay? And I, I just want to be very clear. You cannot affirm the Bible and at the same time be in favor of abortion. Right? Or to put it another way, if you adhere to scripture... I hope you do, the Bible demands that his people seek to protect the life of unborn people. And so we have children in her wombs, in her womb. There are children, plural, by the way, and uh, they're not behaving, are they? Uh, as you see there in verse 22, the children struggled, literally uh, oppressed, crushed, bruised each other. That's what that ver verb is sometimes translated. They're going at each other's throats before they're even born. Okay? Now, if you have boys, you, you can recognize this, right? Because boys fight. Okay? Right? Brothers fight. I came home uh, from work yesterday, and I had one son had another son in a headlock banging on his back. And while he banged on his back, he looked up to me and said, Hi, Dad. And... <laughs> And then I heard a muffled voice from under the armpit say, hi, Dad, right? That's what boys do. What do they want for Christmas? What do my boys want for Christmas? Weapons, okay, right? Just so they can hurt one another. This is what boys do. In my family, it often results in broken glasses, broken furniture, a broken sister if she gets too close, and yet they're fighting. Boys and girls are different, okay? Um, and girls get hugs from Dad, right? Boys get dead legs from dad, right? And, or if I really affectionate, they'll get a nice noogie and they'll walk away thinking, man, dad really loves me as they rub their head, right? Now, Lager, she doesn't understand this. I'm still trying to teach her this. She was raised with one boy in the house, and therefore this was a house of peace. Um, we have a house of war, okay? <laughs> right? And some of you are nodding. You could understand this. I have two brothers, by the way, both older than me, and, um, and, and we fought all the time. Not because we love each other, like my boys do, we fought to survive. Um, I don't know if some of you can relate this. My parents both worked 60 hours a week, 
And so it was kind of Lord of the Flies in my house. And I w- I'm the runt. Both my brothers are very, very large guys. And so you learn to fight dirty, right? Because you want, you want to survive. Well, this is what these boys seem to be doing. They're fighting dirty. They're sinning, right, before they're even born. You can almost imagine Rebecca, you know, somewhere around five months, four months, looking at her belly and thinking, oh, look, he's kicking his brother in the head, right? <laughs> Don't laugh before the, the joke is finished, please. Uh, <laughs> By the way, uh, this is not unique to these individuals or to your home. We see this throughout Scripture. In fact, already in the study of Genesis, what have we seen? Cain and Abel go at it. Seth and, and Ham, the sons of Noah, go at it. Isaac and Ishmael did not have a harmonious relationship. What about Jacob's, his boys? They're not going to get along either. This is the chosen line of God. This is the believing people. And they are always, it seems, to be struggling with the unbelieving people. Even exemplified here in the womb. This was foretold to us. God prophesied this would take place in Genesis chapter 3. In explaining the curse, he, he, he refers to the serpent. And he says, there shall be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that enmity continues, continued in this womb. It continues to this day. The Bible very much speaks that there are two humanities and they are in perpetual conflict. And yet we love those who are not part of our faith family. We want to give grace to those who are not part of our faith family. We want to forgive them. But we are in conflict. There's conflict there because we see life so differently. That, this, that conflict is, is, is exemplified here in the womb. And, and here, poor Rebecca is having a very difficult pregnancy indeed, isn't she? In fact, she mentions as much in there in verse 22 when she says, if it is thus, why is it happening to me? What's going on, she wants to know. And this is kind of a very familiar uh, uh, pattern. In fact, you notice there in verse, uh, uh, at the end of verse 22, so she went to the Lord to inquire. She's praying to the Lord. What's going on? And so some of you follow this pattern, right? You say, oh, Lord, give me a child. And then you're soon praying, oh, Lord, help me with this child, right? Um, you want, uh, you've asked for a child, and then you begin to pray about the children that you actually have. And so she comes to the Lord and, and says, what's going on? And somehow, we're not exactly told, God reveals to her what's happening in this amazing prophecy, con- not just concerning her boys, but concerning uh, uh, all, all of humanity, this cosmic reality, as we see thirdly, uh, the scene number three, the choice of a son. The choice of a son. For God says there in verse 23, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so God explains the truth of what's happening in terms of this kind of universal cosmic uh, significance. First of all, I want to let you know, Rebecca, you're having twins, he tells her. Secondly, the boys represent competing peoples. Right? What does he say? Not one nation shall come from you, but two nations. Jacob, of course, would lead to the nation called Israel, as we know. Esau, from Esau would come the nation Edom. And they would always be divided. They would always be fighting. In fact, about 2,000 years later, uh, a descendant of Jacob is born there in Bethlehem. We call him Jesus, as you know. And who at that day has all the power? Well, a man named King Herod who was a descendant of Esau. And do those guys get along? No. Herod's son, Herod Antipas, of course, would try Jesus some 30 years later, mocking him, abusing him, and, and ridiculing him, and sending him back to Pilate 
to be crucified. There is this perpetual conflict between these boys and the people they represent. Third, the big surprise here, the one I think this whole passage is about, is is that uh, who's going to come out on top? You notice he says, yeah, they'll fight, but the older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. This is contrary, as you know, to their culture. Um, in, In their culture, it is always the firstborn who is the chosen heir. Okay? Uh, he is the one who would lead the family. The firstborn son would be given authority over the clan. Once the patriarch dies, he'd become the new patriarch. But not in this case. God says, no, we're reversing it. In this case, the second son is going to be the heir. The younger is, chose, is the chosen one to bring about God's purposes. Just as God chose Seth rather than Cain, just as he chose Isaac rather than Ishmael, just as he'll choose Joseph rather than uh, many of his brothers, God is choosing here uh, Jacob, as we'll see in a moment, rather than Esau. And what God is teaching us, and it's very important for us, is that God's blessings, even God's salvation, is not according to any natural right we might have. Esau had a natural right as the firstborn to become the heir. But God chooses to bless us according to God's free choice. Jacob, therefore, will become become heir not because of some moral virtue in him, not because of some good works in which he has done. Uh, In fact, he's a very despicable man, as we've already mentioned, but because of what the New Testament mentions 33 times, God's election. Election. And so Paul's going to pick up on this very passage in Romans chapter 9. John read it for us earlier, but let me just mention a a, a portion of it to kind of understand, so we might understand the significance of this. It's in Romans 9 when Paul says, When Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, right? In other words, God's saying, I'm not choosing them based upon their morality before they had done anything. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of their work, not because of their deeds, not because of their character, but because of him who calls. So she was told, the older will serve the younger. He's quoting Genesis 25, 23. As it is written, he goes on to quote Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So God's going to choose Jacob and not Esau. Now, that might lead to an objection in your heart, just as it does for many people. That doesn't sound fair. In fact, that, might, that sounds unjust, that God would choose one and not the other. And Paul anticipates that objection, for he says, What then shall we say? Is there injustice in God's part? Answer, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. You see, he's saying, I'm not giving, when I choose one guy, you know what he's getting? He's getting mercy. Hey, the other guy's not getting injustice. He's getting what he wants. But when I choose one, I give mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, God says. I will decide. So the summary, so then it depends not on human work or on human desire, but on God who has mercy. And we, we may trouble with this, we may not like it, but I say let God's word speak and let our will submit. God says, I'm going to give mercy to Jacob. That is his choice. He is declaring it before they are born in order to make sure we all understand his choice is not based upon their character, but rather on his sovereignty, which is unconstrained by us. We see this throughout the Old Testament. God always, I choose this guy, I choose this guy, I choose this guy. We see this clearly taught in the New Testament. And so I tell you, 
If you are in Christ today, you have been chosen by God. There's nothing for you to boast in, therefore, except in God's abundant mercy upon you. For it depends not on human will or human effort, but on God who has mercy. I understand that's confusing for some of you. I understand that's a mystery for all of us. But let the secret things belong to God and let us submit to what his word says and give him all the glory for your salvation. Fourth scene, the birth of sons. All right, the time has come for them to be born. Verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, just as God said. And then here we have uh, the birth. Uh, The firstborn comes here in verse 25. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Stephen. Okay? Okay. (laughs) My children demanded I actually say that, okay? All right? So I said, Dad, you have to do it, right? Okay, sorry. They called his name Esau. I don't, I'm, it may be because I have a toddler, but when I think of baby Esau, I think of Elmo, okay? And, uh, and, uh, and so uh, out he comes. He's covered in this red fur, which is pretty odd, isn't it? Uh, I did read in my study that the ancient Near East actually has a prejudice against redheads, which is picked up by medieval Christianity. So if you ever, you ever see a painting of the apostles, you say, which one's Judas? He's always the redhead, all right? I, I think redheads should be a protected minority group, I think. Um, there's this pre- prejudice, Esau, uh, um, and so he comes out, and so what do they, they name him? Esau, which means what? Red, okay? So they clearly had not given forethought to what they're going to name their children, right? They didn't put much uh, energy into it. We'll call him Red, and, uh, and, and if his red, hairy body was a shock to them, which I'm sure it was, so was the hand that was grabbing his ankle. As you see in verse 26, afterwards his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so, they, uh, so his name was called Jacob. Twins, from what I've learned, typically are born about an hour apart, but not these boys, okay? It's almost as if Jacob is trying to pull Esau back in so he can cross the finish line first. Okay, it, this is a struggle they're having there at the, at the very end. And so the rest of his life, isn't it? This is what Jacob's going to be doing. This kind of exemplifies his life. He is going to be grabbing and trying to get past his brother. And so they call him Jacob, which literally means heel grabber. Heel grabber, right? So I'd rather be called red, I think, than heel grabber. Um, and and it, it would go on to mean uh, one who takes the place of another. A supplanter. Sometimes you might even have a footnote down. It means he who cheats. So you got, you got two boys. You got red and sneaky, okay? And, uh, and, and he, Jacob is going to seek to fulfill his name. He will indeed, the one, one who takes the place of, he will indeed take the place of the firstborn as God has already prophesied. You notice uh, we have this little note there at the end of verse 26. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So Isaac was 60 when he had kids. Remember how old he was when he was married? 40, okay? And so how long did he pray for a child, okay? Now you say, we did, I didn't know we're doing math today, okay? I'll help you. 20 years, okay? 20 years of praying. And is there not just a little truth there for us to keep praying? You want a spouse? Keep praying. You want your spouse to come to faith? Keep praying. You want a son? Keep praying. 
It doesn't seem, we don't seem like he doubts. He doesn't give up. We have no indication of that. He doesn't gripe at God. He just keeps praying. He doesn't grow bitter. He doesn't grow cold. He trusts God and he keeps praying. You want a child? What should you do? Should I go to the doctor? Absolutely go to the doctor. Absolutely. But keep praying. Trust God and keep praying. We don't have all the answers, but we are told we must pray. Which leads us to scene number five, the division of the sons. The division of the sons. Verse 27 says, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. So, in other words, they may be twins, but there's nothing identical about them. Esau is a, is a man's man, right? Um, he's, you, you can kind of see this. He's an athlete, right? And he didn't play soccer, okay? I mean, it's right. He's a uh, he, he, the manly guy. He drives a truck, right? Uh, he drinks his coffee black. He shoots things. That's what Esau is, okay? Jacob, what, he's quiet. He dwells in tents. Jacob is a, he's a mama's boy. He drives a smart car, okay? Okay? <laughs> I know, I'm alienated. He listens to Taylor Swift, and he drinks herbal tea, and this is Jacob, okay? And so they're very, very different. Esau goes out hunting. We're going to kill it and grill it. Jacob's at home making quiche, okay? These are two different (laughs) boys, okay? And if their character wasn't enough to enable rivalry, it seems to me that their parents' behavior assures it. We read a very sad verse here in verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob, right? So Isaac loves Esau. Why? Because he likes the food that he cooks, which is kind of sad for Isaac. I mean, would you like you to be characterized by what you like to eat? Tell me about Stephen. Oh, he likes steak. Okay. I mean, is that it? I mean, is there anything else? I like this boy because he gives me what I want to eat. That's going to be a huge problem in Isaac's life, as we'll see when we get to Genesis 27. Right? And so Isaac loves Esau, but, but Rebecca, well, she loves, she loves Jacob. And again, this is not a passage on parenting, but I do think there's a principle here, a cautionary tale, that parents beware of playing favorites. Right? Well, I was talking to my kids about this last night. We've got to beware of playing favorites. Some, some of you are raised in homes where kids were given nicknames, like one over here is sweetheart and one over here is stupid, right? Okay? You know, uh, uh, your sister never got a C, you might have heard, or your brother always keeps his room clean, and parents pitting children against one another. And I, and I, I just want to caution us against that. We, of course, have different relationships with our children because our children are different, but we must love them equally, shouldn't we? And we see over and over and over in the Bible that this parental favoritism, it's not just this story, it's again and again, leads to great evil. In fact, Jacob, the, this, this boy, he's going to have a favorite too. Remember that? And he's so, it's so irritating that all the brothers want to kill him. And so daddy loves Esau, mama loves Jacob, and it's a big, big problem. And if it's in, it's in your home, I'll tell you, it's going to cloud your vision of the sin in your favorite child. It's going to bring division between you and your spouse. And it's going to breed jealousy and conflict within your children. A conflict that we see culminating here in our last scene. Scene number six, the confrontation of the sons. Pick up in verse 29, we read, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. 
And you can imagine Esau plowing up the field with a you know, spear over his shoulder, and he's exhausted and hungry from a failed hunt, and he approaches the tents, and there's this ama- amazing fragrance of this stew coming out. And he comes in, and he demands some of that stew. He says, uh, maybe your translation says, I'm starving. Give me some of that stew. Which makes me think that he's probably a teenager at this time. Um, I have a teenage boy. I, have, uh, um, I, I remember being, uh, growing up with te- we, all my boys, were uh, son- brothers, I should say, were teenagers at the same time. It seems to me that teenage boys have, have really two states. One is starving, and two is sleeping. Right? And, uh, and so here Jacob, he's like, I'm, I'm starving. I need to eat. Or I'm about to die, he says. You know, uh, certainly exaggerating his condition. And uh, notice Jacob's response to him. He says there in verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And you could tell this kid has some serious character flaws. His brother walks in and says, can I, can I have some of your stew? Give me some of your stew. And Jacob's response is not, sure, have some stew. He asks for this amazing extreme price. Um, give me your birthright. Give it to me right now. And I think he does so because he knows Esau might even pay it. Esau kind of reminds me of the kid who thinks like a nickel's worth more than a dime because it's larger. Right? And Jacob's the evil brother and says, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a nickel for five dimes. I mean, that's what's going on. You've got a blockhead and a swindler here. And this whole home is a total mess. The birthright, by the way, really meant two things for most people. It meant uh, a, a, a financial inheritance. The firstborn, as you know, perhaps, would receive a double share. So you would divide up the shares based upon the children. The firstborn son gets twice, uh, tw- two shares. And in this case, it's a very, very wealthy family. This would come out to millions and millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, most likely. And, and so it, it is an incredible uh, a blessing, certainly. The other aspect of a birthright is a spiritual reality that the firstborn son, as I've already mentioned, becomes the head of the clan. He becomes the patriarch, the spiritual leader of the entire family, the entire tribe. And then thirdly, in the case of this particular family, he actually becomes the forerunner to the savior of the entire world world. So millions of dollars, the head of your clan, the lineage of the Messiah, don't trade that for lunch. Right? right? I mean, it's just, it's just utter folly. In, in fact, I, I think it's interesting. Jacob's already been promised this, by the way, by God. And yet he doesn't trust God to bring it about, does he? He doesn't say, okay, if God promised to me, it's going to happen. I, I'll just let God do it in his time and in his way. But no, he wants to swindle his brother. Just like Abraham tried many times through his own efforts to bring about the promises. And we see this all the time happening in our lives, I think. We, we justify our sin because our sin leads to some good end. Churches do this. They say, well, uh, you know, God clearly wants to build the church, and so we'll, we'll start, try all sorts of gimmicks and tricks and manipulations in order to grow the church as if God needed help to grow the church rather than doing what God calls us to faithfully do, namely preach the Bible. Worship earnestly, live in community as we do the one another's in each other's lives. Well, so here's Jacob says, sell me your birthright now. It seems Esau doesn't care, does he? For we read in verse 22, Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob, the salesman, he, in light of that statement, he whips out the contract, doesn't he, in this moment of weakness. Verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me now. Right? Swear to me. It's sign. Okay, let's get this done. And Esau is compliant, so he swore to him. And 
sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. You see, as contemptible as Jacob is, uh, the point of this story is Esau's godlessness. In fact, we, all we have is really the explanation of the story until we get to the very end, and there's this little commentary, this little, the, the narrator, whoever wrote this down, Moses perhaps, is, um, uh, he, he, he tells us what this means, a divine commentary. What's those last five words? Is it, thus Esau despised his birthright? In other words, he thought so little of God, he thought so little of his blessings that he tossed them away for stew. He's a godless man. And so when I talked about election a moment ago, and you think, well, what, Pastor, what about free will? Well, please understand, in choosing Jacob and not Esau, God is not choosing contrary to Esau's desire. Or Esau's choice, not Esau saying, I really want to be with you, God. I really want to follow you, God. No, God, Esau says, I care less about any of this. That's his free choice. His choice is to despise everything that God had laid in his family. And so the, the author of Hebrews will actually write in chapter 12, see that no one is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance as the oldest son. And I'm afraid this is an attitude, this Esau-like attitude is something that we see repeated over and over and over again. Please understand, Esau, he's the grandson of Abraham himself. And he is raised in a home that is committed to following God, though they struggle mightily as we've seen. He is told about God, his family has a commitment to God, and Esau doesn't care at all. He doesn't care about his family. He doesn't care about the truths in which he's given. And how many walk this same path that Esau walked? They're raised in godly homes. They're pointed to Christ. And they get to the point and they think, what do I care? What do I care? And they walk away from that amazing birthright, that amazing blessing that God gave them to be put in that home with those people. Esau here, just like Esau, so many choose the passing stew of this world for the sake of our birthrights. And so may I be clear here this morning, if you despise the gospel, if you despise the work of God in sending his son into this world to live a perfect life and die in the place of sinners like you and I and then be raised from the dead, if you despise that work of God, you will lose eternity. I think the tragedy here is Esau thought He's going to die unless he ate some stew, and in the process, he gives up eternal life for it. And how many people today, and you know them and I know them, they think, if I don't get to do this, if I don't get to uh, be with this person or commit this sin or take this act, then life is not worth living. And so they go for it and run away from God and never return, giving up eternal life for it. It's the same lie told in the garden, eat this fruit and you will live, and they ate the fruit and they died. Many, how many walk this same path that Esau walks into eternal condemnation? And yet he is not simply a picture for those who walk away from God. He, I think he's a picture for you and I, Christian, who walk near God. Uh, and we, we read this and we think, okay, this is the dumbest thing ever. How can anybody trade all this for, for lunch? What is going on? And yet I wonder, what is it that you and I do? When we are pulled into lust, when we are given over to rage, 
when we surrender to gossip? What is it we're doing when we say, I'm, I'm going to sleep in and not seek after the Lord, not rise and pray? What is it we're doing when we have time to read the box score and not read the Bible? Are we not trading, if you will, birthrights for stew, for soup? I mean, how often is there something in front of us, Christian, that says, I want it right now, and I'm going to pay whatever it costs to get it? It was when I was writing this sermon about a month ago, I, I, uh, I, I came home one evening, and we have chickens in our, uh, um, we raise chickens, and, and there was a chicken feed issue going on. I won't get into the, the, the nitty-gritty, but I discovered that my child, who came out to greet her daddy, had not handled the chicken issue in the way I thought should be handled, and so my frustration overcame me. And I'm not a yeller, that's not how I, I don't erupt, but I withdraw, I get sullen. And my daughter, who wanted to greet her daddy, uh, um, is greeted by uh, just utter and ridiculous disappointment in her daddy. And so she slinks up to her room in tears. And I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm giving up the birthrights of God for a bowl of soup. And so are you, and so are we all. When we think, I need this momentary desire, and I'm willing to give up the blessings of God for it. You have birthrights, Christian. I mean, we think about eternal life. We think about forgiveness. We think we're going to inherit the world. You, yeah, you're, you, you are. You're a, listen, you're a child of God. But you have birthrights in this life. You have the birthright of intimacy with God. You have the birthright of, of uh, the joyful blessings that God bestows upon the, uh, the obedient. You have the birthright of bearing great fruitfulness in other people's lives. And I think we so often trade it for these trifling, ridiculous things. We give our hearts to idols for soup. We give up divine pleasures and the empty pursuit of this world for, a, for just a, a, for a lunch. And my hope is that God will just use this, kind of put this in your heart as he has in mind when temptation comes. The little, holy, the little whisper from the Holy Spirit says, that's just a bowl of soup. That's just stew. You really want to give up so much for it. And may that just be a tool that God would use in your heart. That when you're tempted to lust, when you're tempted to gossip, when you're tempted to rage, it demands so much from you. It demands intimacy with God and the peace that he bestows upon those who are obedient. And God, keep us from that. And we started this sermon with Pastor Josh teaching us from 1 Peter that God uh, has, has worked in our lives so that we might die to sin and to live for righteousness. You see, our birthright that we have is not simply because we're born into the right family like Esau was. Our birthright, Christian, actually costs the life of Jacob's greater son. I mentioned Jacob means the one who takes the place of. It seems to me that his greater son lived up to that name. The Lord Jesus Christ would take the place of you and take the place of me. And it's almost as if he, he reached out and he grabbed us by the heel and pulled us back in order that he himself, instead of us, might march into the condemnation of God. And just like Jacob took Esau's birthright, so, if you will, Jesus took yours. You have a birthright by nature, and it's not blessing. It's death. It's condemnation. It's damnation. And Jesus says, I will take your birthright and in doing so, he freely gives us his. The older brother giving up to his younger siblings 
the blessings that are rightly due to him. The birthrights we have because of our older brother Jesus. In fact, in this table before us, we have, we have a picture, don't we, of what he was willing to do so that you might become a son and daughter of God. My brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ, this Holy Supper before us, which we are about to celebrate, is a feast of remembrance. Remembrance that our Lord Jesus was sent of the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood and to fulfill for us obedience to the divine law and even even to the bitter and shameful death of the cross. And so in the bread and the cup we take, in just a moment, we'll be reminded of his death and of his resurrection and of his ascension through which our Lord has established a new and eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation that we might be accepted by God and never forsaken by him. Will you pray with me as we prepare our hearts for this meal? Our Father, we are thankful for the work of our Lord. We, we look at Jacob and we look at Esau and neither, neither come out so great. And in seeing them, perhaps we see ourselves. We're no better. That's why we need Jesus. This is why we need his work on the cross for us. And so we take, come to this table and we are reminded of what he would do for us that we might have this birthright. Help us to cherish it, protect it, and guard it. Help us to delight in it and the one who gave it to us. And we pray for those here this morning who have not yet yielded their life to Christ. Maybe they're just exploring what Christianity means. Maybe they're here really against their own desire and will. And yet there is power in your word. There is power in the cross. Would you even in their own hearts now ask them what they might think about, how is it that they're going to stand before a holy God? Are they going to attempt to stand in their own goodness and their own righteousness? Is that good enough before perfection? Or do they need the perfection of another? as you have provided. Perhaps one even here today, even as I pray to you, they might pray as well, asking you to forgive them of their sins as they confess their faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died for their sins, and that he rose from the dead as they yield their life to you as their Lord and God. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.